All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. If you would, please take out a Bible. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we're going to continue in our series entitled Jesus is Better as we've been studying the book of Hebrews. And we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 today. Before we do that... um, If you would join me in prayer uh, one more time, I want to pray just for um, those who are suffering on the Gulf Coast as even right now a hurricane is blowing in and just pray that God would protect them and that we would keep them in mind as we worship this morning. Pray with me if you would. Father, we are well aware that there's a storm that's brewing out in the Gulf and Um, God, we pray for physical protection for those in Florida and those in the path of this storm. God, we pray that you would um, be close, that you would be near. Father, we pray not only for their physical protection, but God, we pray that you would even use the elements of this storm in order to speak into the, the spiritual depths of our souls in reminding us that you're the God who calms all storms, that, God, you're aware of not just this physical storm that's blowing, but even spiritual storms that are um, blowing in our hearts and in our lives and deep in our souls even today. So, God, I want to pray as we have sung of the gospel and sung of the glorious person and work of Jesus that you might fill us up with your Holy Spirit today, that we might overflow with the faith that only you can give. And God, I pray for those who are struggling today with loneliness, with hurt, with sadness. God, with disappointment and with wounds that still aren't healed. God, I pray that today as we look into your word that we'd be reminded of the hope we have in Jesus and the fact that he is healer and that he is Savior of our souls. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to begin uh, in verse 1. Follow along with me, if you would, as I read. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. Feel free to pick one up. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, 
God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. As a kid, do any of you remember your parents just wearing you out with lesson after lesson about having good manners? Do anybody remember that as a kid? And I'm not talking to my kids right now, so they don't need to like point back and forth at one another or, or to any of the young kids in the room or teenagers. I'm talking specifically about all of us because we went through a phase where it seems as if all we heard was say yes, ma'am, say no, ma'am, be polite. Did you say thank you? Put your napkin in your lap, stop using your shirt as a napkin. Anybody remember those statements? Close your mouth. Stop smacking. Stand up straight. Don't slouch. Quit smacking. Did, it, did you say thank you? Over and over again. Did you wash your hands? Did you say thank you? And our parents continue over and over. And it's not like we didn't hear the information, right? We knew that after you went to the bathroom, you were supposed to wash your hands, we just didn't appreciate the information. It wasn't a value for us. We were naive. We were immature. And in the same sort of way, Hebrews is that nagging kind of ongoing, not about manners, but instead about perseverance. Throughout this letter, we're going to see over and over and over again that the author is challenging Jewish Christians who are facing persecution and suffering to persevere in the faith. It's like, how long have we been talking about perseverance? Since chapter 2. How long is he going to talk about perseverance? Through the end of the book. Why does he talk about perseverance over and over and over again? For the same reason that your parents said, did you wash your hands when you came out of the restaurant? Because there are certain things that we are slow about taking hold of. Certain ways in which we are slow about maturing. And we are a people who must persevere. That we would not give up. No matter our trials. No matter what hurt we experience, what loneliness, what anger, what sadness that we would not give up because Jesus is worth it. That's the whole theme of this book. Jesus is better. He's better than anything else in this world that we're going to experience. And so in the text that we look at today, the writer is offering not simply an encouragement, but actually a warning to us, a warning not to give up. The context you know well if you've listened over the last few weeks. It comes from Psalm 95 as the psalmist is recounting the story of the Exodus. And he's saying, don't be like the Israelites who, who doubted God. They didn't listen to Moses. They refused to enter the promised land. And they were forced to wander in the desert for 40 years. And they did not enter the land that God had promised. They did not receive the rest that God had promised them. Now, we hear that story, but 
in order to understand this context, we hear that story and it just kind of washes over us. If you're in Sunday school as a child, you remember maybe a flannel graph and you know the parting of the Red Sea and you know this story. Oh yeah, they didn't get to enter the promised land after 40 years. And we kind of think about that almost like, oh, they didn't pay their money for the field trip so they didn't get to go. Ah, too bad. Or, ah, yeah, it would have been a cool family vacation. They were going to the Grand Canyon, but nah, they missed out on that. No, it's so much more than that. Jared reminded us with, with mathematics a few weeks ago that as they wandered for 40 years, if there's just a million people, and most likely there were more, if there's a million people over 40 years, you do the math, that's about 70 people a day who are just dying off. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Like the plague had entered into this camp, into this group of people, and it was. It was a plague of unbelief. And they did not enter into the rest that God had appointed for them. That's the context that this writer is using as he offers us a warning today. These people plagued with unbelief. The Israelites failed to believe, and so they suffered death. They were ultimately separated from God for all of eternity. And now the writer is warning all people that until the time that Jesus returns, that we are to be a people who keep the faith, not because faith is dependent upon our works, but because our works reveal whether our faith is true or not. Our works today reveal whether our faith is true or not. The big idea is how you respond to the gospel today determines if your faith is real. It's a tough bottom line. It's a tough big idea to grab hold of. Really? How you respond to the gospel today determines if your faith is real. The writer of Hebrews is offering the warning that there are Jewish Christians who have left the Jewish way of life. They've heard the message of Jesus. They've even claimed to follow Jesus, but they have not truly believed. So they are a people who have not submitted their life to Jesus, accepting his saving grace. They were people who walked like Christians and talked like Christians, but because they did not live by faith, they were not Christians. There's three facets of salvation that I want to share with you from this passage today. Three facets of salvation. And the first is this. We see it in verses 1 and 2. Salvation is an urgent call. Salvation is an urgent call. The writer begins with these words, entering his rest. What does he mean by that? Keeps using the word rest over and over again. Is he just talking about taking a nap? No. The writer is equating the eternal salvation of our souls with rest. Whenever we see salvation and the kingdom of God, particularly throughout the New Testament, they're always a both a now and not yet. You always see that regarding the kingdom of God in the New Testament. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is now, and it is not yet 
fulfilled or completed. When we come to know Jesus, we begin to experience the the saving grace of being freed from the power and the penalty of sin. We experience that immediately. And we're being made into his likeness. Corinthians says we're being transformed literally from glory to glory. But this is a lifelong process called sanctification. Salvation comes at a moment in time, and then we spend the rest of our lives becoming more and more like Jesus. So it is an urgent call that we would enter his rest. But I've got two sub points that I want you, that you would quickly glance over in this passage, just reading through it if you don't pay attention. In verses one and two, the first sub point is it's an urgent call to the community. Look at what verse one says. Let us fear. Let us fear. Did you realize that you have a role to play in the kingdom of God in bringing men, women, and children to Jesus? That you have a role to play? That if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're part of God's team of ambassadors, which an ambassador is one who is empowered with authority and who is sent out as a representative in order to make disciples. So you have a role to play in the kingdom of God. Yet the, the writer says, let us fear. There is fear because there is an urgency about this call. He says, let us fear while the promise of entering his rest still stands. The New Testament reminds us that while God is slow to wrath, his patience doesn't last for eternity. His patience in our lives doesn't last for eternity because we're all going to face something that we don't really want to think about, that we don't often think about. We're all going to face death one day, and there will be an end to God's patience in our lives at that moment. That makes salvation an urgent call. Many Christians... um, If we think about our lives, I think that uh, the way in which we live our lives, we don't live with a real urgency that reflects the call of salvation. I fear that we as a church, and I don't mean the church in America um, or even the church in Memphis, but I mean particularly Mercy Hill Church, I fear that we have lost a sense of our urgency for the souls of men and women. And there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, We live in a part of town, and many times we can tell a very disappointing story. Well, the majority of people who live around me, they don't go to church. The majority of people who I talk with, they're not Christians. Most people that I interact with, they're not receptive to the gospel. Jared said that we went out um, yesterday and just walked some of the streets in our neighborhood. And sure, there were people who just said, hey, I don't want to talk. But that's not everyone. And we can't allow people's responses to color the vision and the calling that Jesus has placed on our lives, which is to make disciples of all people. It's an urgent call. 
It seems that many Christians have rejected some of the awkward forms of of proselytizing that they were subjected to in previous generations. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're like, I'm not signing up to be that guy on Bill Street with the bullhorn and like passing out the gospel tracts and yelling at people that you're going to hell. Like, I'm not signing up for that. And so we've rejected that form of making disciples, yet at the same time, I fear that we've failed to create space in our lives to build authentic relationships with people who are far from Jesus so that they might come to experience Jesus, to come to know him as they come to know his family called the church. And I want to encourage you that as you hear this message, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. If you think about your own life and you think, man, I don't have the kind of urgency in my life for those who are far from Jesus, by all means, don't go out and try to fix it. Don't go out and try to do more. But my best advice to you is begin by simply in a genuine broken state coming before the Lord and asking God to give you brokenness, a broken heart for lost friends and lost family and people who are around you who don't know Jesus. That you would ask God, God, help me to see these individuals like you see them. Help me to look upon them with compassion like Jesus looked upon Jerusalem. He didn't look upon them with judgment. He looked upon them and he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And that we would ask God to give us a genuine heart that breaks for those who are far from him. And secondly, I would encourage you, pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. And as God gives you opportunities, invite them into relationship. Whatever that looks like, it's fall. It's incredible time to be outside. Maybe inviting someone who's far from God into relationship simply means having a fire pit and asking them to come over and spend time with you and begin creating authentic relationships. Maybe it begins by asking them to come and gather with you at your home with your missional community and just inviting them to a meal, introducing them to some of your friends. Maybe it's watching a football game together as you begin to build authentic relationships. Hey, one that I want to remind you of, don't discount inviting them to a Sunday gathering like this. There's a lot of people who have kind of gotten burned by the whole church growth movement and the marketing schemes of the church, branding in a CEO nature. And I get that. I've worked in churches like that. It gets old quick. At the same time, don't discount authentically being passionate about Jesus and inviting people to enter into relationship with you and to worship him. We do that here every Sunday morning. This is an evangelistic tool. I'm not asking you to brand Mercy Hill Church and to put bumper stickers on your cars, but I am asking you, if you're genuinely passionate about Jesus, then share with people what you're passionate about. Charlie, one of, the, uh, one of our friends who rents his space to us, man, he's, one of, he's a great salesman. But he, one of the most authentic people I know, when I'm around, he goes, hey, have you met Brad? 
Hey, Brad, he pastors this little church that meets at this at my space. It's great. You ought to come. You'd love it. He just throws out an open invitation. And he, he does it all the time. Anybody that we meet. I'm like, Charlie, I'm not asking you to do that. We're going to pay rent regardless of whether you invite people to come here or not. He just loves to do it. Because he really believes that. He's passionate about Jesus and he wants other people to know him. Don't discount just a genuine, authentic invitation into relationship, no matter what that looks like. And finally, don't discount church membership. The Army Rangers and the Marines have this phrase of no one left behind. And the movie Lone Survivors illustrates that as a whole crew of people came in in another helicopter in order to try to bring those soldiers out, and then that helicopter was destroyed. But that mantra of no one left behind, they'll literally search for days and weeks in order to find even just um, a fallen comrade in order to bring his body home. No one left behind. And, And in that sense, the writer is saying, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. He's saying, make sure, church, that a healthy church will leave no one behind. Let us fear. That's why we think church membership is such a big deal around here. We've talked about covenant part. We call them covenant partners. We think it's important that we know who the members are so that we know if we're leaving anyone behind. That we would know who's a part of the flock and who's not. And that we would fight for the faith. That when we see someone slipping, that we would come around them and that we would say, we are in this together. And that we would leave no one behind. So it's an urgent call to the community, but it's also an urgent call to the religious. If you look in verse 2. The writer of Hebrews is well aware that there are former Jews who they've left the Jewish faith in order to follow Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. They've heard Jesus' message and acted. But just like the Israelites who followed Moses and left Egypt, they are not acting in faith. They're merely going through the motions of religiosity. And there's a lot of people that I meet in Memphis, who are good old religious people, who kind of have this idea of God's got my back. I grew up in the church at one point or another. And they say, oh yeah, I got a church home. And I say, where do you, where, what church is your home? Oh, you know, I go to my uncle's church. Where is that? Oh, I can't remember the name. But God's got my back. You know, oh, I'm a person of faith. And in the same way, these were people who seemed to be following God. They seemed to have left the old ways of living, but they are struggling with belief. It's not enough simply to come to church any more than it was enough to have been a member of Israel during the Exodus. It's not enough to hear the gospel or even to understand it, to explain it to others or even to appreciate the wonder and the beauty of the gospel unless you receive the gospel in faith. If you don't respond to it by confessing that you're a sinner and depending on Jesus for salvation, then the scriptures say all your works are merely filthy rags. 
John MacArthur says it this way, belief with nothing else will save us. Belief with nothing else will save us. Unbelief with everything else will condemn us. Three facets of salvation. Salvation is an urgent call. But secondly, salvation is available. It's available. The writer of Hebrews is making the point that God's rest is still available. This is good news. Many of the Israelites who had left Egypt in the Exodus, they didn't enter the promised land. They didn't enter Canaan, which symbolized God's rest. They instead died in the desert, separated from God. And the writer repeats the quote from Psalm 95. They shall not enter my rest. He, it's, it is a little confusing at first read as you look at verse 3 and look at verse 5. The point is not just to repeat the failure of the unbelieving Israelites, but instead the point is to emphasize the reality of the rest that was provided and that remains offered to this day. Salvation is still available. It's good news. The writer goes on to illustrate, even in a further sense, that salvation is using this idea of rest on the seventh day of the creation week. Now, this is, this is amazing to think. The, the point the writer is making is that the rest God offers us in salvation is nothing less than the very rest that he himself has enjoyed since the completion of the world, since his creation work was finished. Think about that for a minute. God's rest wasn't a temporary state, but instead God's mode of operating is rest. Listen, the first day, the Genesis account says the first day was concluded. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And then we see the phrases repeated for each of God's six working days. There was evening, there was morning the second day. But the pattern stopped at the seventh. Unlike the other days, God's Sabbath rest doesn't end. God is continually at rest. His rest goes on forever. It, it is a rest because God rules with absolute supremacy. He rules with complete sovereignty. God's rest continues even now. And that means if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you can stop worrying and striving to please God because rest means that salvation is available for you. But it also means that there is no one, and I want you to hear this, there is no one who is too far that they cannot be changed and rescued by Jesus' love. Salvation is available. And what that means is that we don't get to place judgment on our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers in order to consider who's too far from God because his hand is not too short that he can save them. God is continually at rest and his salvation is available even now. It's good news. Finally, the author writes and says that not only salvation is it an urgent call and not only is it available, but maybe most importantly, he says salvation's for today. Salvation is for today. If you look in verse seven, he says today. And it's so interesting to me 
how we live in a time in which it seems that we think about today, and that's all we think about. We live in a day and time in which people seem to believe and live as if life is going to go on forever. But it's not. It's not. We would do well, you might even consider doing this today, that you would go home, pull out a piece of paper, write a letter to your family. Write a letter to your family that could be found upon the time of your death. How do you hope that you would have lived? How do you wish your life to be spent? When we begin to think about our lives, not as if they'll go on forever, but when we begin to think about our lives from the end of this life in light of eternity, and when we think about it in reverse, it begins to change our values and our priorities and what we count as important. It would do us well to go back and to review the parable that Jesus shared in, in the book of Luke. In chapter 12, he said this of a man in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. As you reflect on your life, what are you busying your life with? What are you relying on? What are you placing your hope in? Are you living, believing that salvation is an urgent call that's available today? Are you a person who lives by faith? Is your faith in Jesus? As I reflected on this passage, the book of Hebrews, it's a difficult book. You got to read it over and over again. You just kind of have to turn it over and over in your mind. It kind of reminds me of those uh, little jigsaw puzzles that are like a nail, two nails that are bent together and they seem to be locked together. You can't really, you look at them and you can't really figure out how to get them apart. You just kind of have to play around with them and all of a sudden they kind of come apart. And for me, as I read through this passage this week and the writer is, there's a lot of detail here. He's going back, he's talking about perseverance. He's using a passage from Psalms that reflects a story from Exodus and there's a lot of deep meaning that's here. But as I reflected on this passage more and more, my takeaway as I walked away is that I think, for me, that I don't have the kind of urgency in my life that the gospel calls me to have. That my hope, like Jared said earlier, is too often found in temporary things and circumstances and all the parts of life that seem to blow in, 
that seem to be distractions that in the long haul really aren't that important? As I was thinking about this message and the urgency of the, the writer, as he writes this, he says, we should, we should fear for those who don't know Jesus. We should fear for them, lest they would fall away from the living God. I was reminded of this, this old song that Steve Green wrote. And um, some of you know it, and you probably think it's kind of cheesy because it's from the 80s. You know, and eight, that's, 80s music's cheesy, right? Um, but Steve Green wrote this song, and we would sing it in, in youth group. And we had a little youth group choir, and on Sunday nights, you know, not many people there on Sunday nights. You let the youth group choir sing. And, and this was one of the songs that we sang. But this, it, it, the Lord brought this song back to my mind, and I've just been reflecting on it all week. And it's a really simple song. The name of the song is simply, People Need the Lord. It's a really simple song. And, and here, here are the lyrics simply says, every day they pass me by. I, <clears throat> I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries. Only Jesus hears. And then the chorus goes on. It just says, people need the Lord. People need the Lord. It goes on. It says, at the end of broken dreams, he's the open door. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. When will we realize People need the Lord. And that simple song has stuck with me as I've read this passage. And as I've thought about the words and the truths of what this writer is writing. That it's so easy to get caught up in our lives. Just doing the same old thing. You know, it can feel good to get up and have a routine. To go to a Sunday service. It can feel good to go in to volunteer and to give of our time. It even looks good on our taxes sometimes when we give a lot of money to a nonprofit. But there's a lot of difference in living by routine and living a surrendered life that's given to Jesus by faith, trusting Him and allowing Him to then use our lives in order to be ambassadors for Him. That is a life worth living. The band's going to come up, and they're going um, to end with a song that I, I really like this song. It's kind of an old song as well. Some of you are going to recognize part of it um, as an old hymn. And it harkens back to yeah, yesteryear, but it points us forward to the rest of the story. It points us to where we're going, and that's one thing I love about it. And so as you hear this song, just spend some time reflecting on it, and uh, I want to pray for us. 
Father, we are reminded through this text today that your call of salvation is an urgent call. It's an urgent call in the lives of those who don't know you, but it's also an urgent call of faith for those of us who have followed you and are continuing to persist in our faith. God, I pray for the man, woman, or child who is here today who has been going through the routine but has not surrendered their life to you. And like the Israelites, left Egypt, they're doing the right thing, they're walking, they're moving, but they're not living by faith. Father, I pray that they would come to know you today, surrendering their life to you, beginning to live by faith. God, I pray for others who are here who are just reminded that it's so easy to allow our hope and our joy to be found in things outside of Jesus. Jesus, may you remind us of your goodness. Jesus, may you, in the time that we are here this morning, encourage our hearts and point us even in a greater and deeper way to the truth that you are better. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.